Welcome back to Pod is a Woman. I'm Alejandra. I'm Darian. And I'm Johanna. And there's probably one word I could think of to describe our debate yesterday, <laughs> and that's unhinged. What about you guys? That was Ooh. a freaking disaster. It was really, really painful to watch. But like, I had to remember that it was the first time in nearly four years that Donald Trump has stood on stage with someone and been challenged. Honestly, that's the worst debate I've ever seen. The whole time Trump was interrupting and lying and bullying. I mean, it was almost like watching an abusive boyfriend mansplaining. And frankly, the folks that lost were the American people because right. this was reality TV. This wasn't an actual civil discourse about so many issues that we need to talk about right now. And there are so many issues in play right now and so many really traumatic things happening around this country from COVID to racial justice to everything that is going on in our economy. And for there not to be an actual conversation and for the American people not to have the opportunity to hear from the two candidates, two white men that are running for president, it's really, really shameful, I think. It's so hard. And you guys know, because I started sharing with you and Alejandra, you and I have been talking about this for a while, but it's really personal. This year for my family in downstate Illinois, my dad had a brewery in, in Keokuk, Iowa. My mom was diagnosed with breast cancer. And my dad had to make a really tough decision to close his small business, which is a brewery. So, you know, it's been really affected by COVID. And so this weekend was his last weekend. And he made the decision very quickly, you know, and it's like all of these things are so real and so painful for so many Americans. And so for the president of the United States not to have the grace to stand up on the stage and talk about issues, but instead throw out, you know, Hunter Biden, even when President, you know, when Vice President Biden was trying to talk about Bo Biden, who served in Iraq, it was disgraceful. And it was like, oh, my God, where are are we? It's because he knows he's losing. You know, when you see someone grasping at straws like that, he wanted to talk about everything other than the issues. Every time that there was a question about the issues, we watched him deflect it and talk about, we were talking about COVID, I believe. And he started talking about the grades that Joe Biden got while he was in college. No, I mean, let's talk about the over 200,000 people who have died and dismissed know? state schools by the dismissed way which i went schools. to the university of kansas and university of, course, of illinois exactly and i was just like excuse me like you are showing your elitism right here for all of us to see and johanna i'm so sorry to hear about your father having to close his business and the trouble with your mother and your family and like many other families across the country are experiencing such hardships and you want a president who shows some level of empathy. And none of that came across last night. And part of me feels like, you know, this is a part of his process. I said that there was very little planning and preparation in the way that we used to do debate prep. Well, that was clear. The campaign trail. (laughs) But I think that the goal was to get Americans to tune out, to turn it off within like the first 15 minutes to just close it down. Because At this point, nobody wants to tune in for all of the arguing. Well, to tune out, but also it's to be afraid. 
you know, to actually intimidate people from going to the polls. So there's there's so many pieces that we can unpack here. But can we start with the fact that he did not denounce white supremacy yes. when he had the opportunity to? It was one of those moments where it, it was a yes or no question. Mm -hmm. And he just would not answer and pivoted to this really strange call out to the Proud Boys and this stand down and stand by, stand by. Stand by. And for them to have all, like already started printing t-shirts and putting out videos and getting new patches. And you look at this organization that claims that they're white chauvinist from the Pacific Northwest. This is, it's essentially a gang. And yeah. they are going around creating violence in all of these communities, but they have to stand down and stand by while his response to Antifa is someone has to do something about them. It's not even dog whistling at this point. He is calling on his base and his base is full of white supremacists. Well, the thing is, like, he had just brought up white supremacy in the debate and he completely pivots to completely. Antifa, like does not even address the question. Proud Boys has been tied to the violence, some of the violence we've seen at recent protests. And to your point, Darian, this morning, the New York Times reported that they've seen a spike in their membership since last night. So that message that he sent, the dog whistle that over a bullhorn was received because people feel galvanized. They feel like they got the nod and put that together with the comment about watching the polls. It's really terrifying. It is. And honestly, you know, I, I couldn't agree more that, you know, when <laughs> my big frustration is I still believe and, you know, we all were there working with President Obama. I still believe it's a slim minority of the country that is grossly racist. Then there are people who just don't understand their bias or, you know, the preconceived notions that they have. But the slim majority of people actually are filled with hate enough to hate another person. And we saw that because people, you know, who we never would have expected were supporters of President Obama. And so for President Trump to not just outright say this is wrong and gross and you should not, you know, we should never condone violence, it it is flies in the face of even what President Bush did. President Bush, and so even to go, the bridge that they went to was talking about uh, bias training, right, in the government. This is something that President Bush and President Obama were both trying to address. And so for President Trump to, like, stand there and saying, no, it's all Democrats, it's like, oh, my God, this is the plague. <laughs> like, th this is as dangerous to our country as COVID is. Look, he's setting up the perfect storm here. And it's like, I feel like we're watching it in slow motion as we're like inching towards election day. And it's really terrifying. We need to vote. We need to not be scared to go to the polls. And they're setting up this situation where it's actually, you're thinking, am I going to be safe voting? Right. How is this America right now? He's calling them to go to the polls and to intimidate voters. And how do we stop that? How do we, to your point, Alejandra, protect people and their ability to go, you know, use their fundamental right to vote? 
Well, and that brings us to the voting by mail thing. Can we talk about that for a second? No, that's exactly what I was going to say. Alejandra is, I really want to talk about this because I saw this weekend a young person from Kentucky post something about give it up on Kentucky. Uh, McGrath won't beat McConnell. And I looked at the numbers and the number of registered Democrats in Kentucky would have beat Donald Trump had they all voted. And so I am sorry, but when we start saying give it up, we will lose. Like as long as we get every single person to vote, we will win. And so, yes, vote by mail if you have to. Yes, vote in person if you have to. And the difference I see in the Biden campaign and the difference that I'm very enthusiastic about is when I've been part of any of their voter call centers or trainings or volunteer things, they are hungry for our help right now. And so anyone who was disgusted by that debate and concerned about our democracy, get involved. Well, you look at some of the stuff that he was saying about voting by mail and already starting to try to create uncertainty around it and saying that postal workers were selling mm-hmm. these ballots, that these ballots were ending up in the river, that people can vote mm-hmm. after the election. Like None of that is true. You are spewing lies. You are spewing disinformation and trying to create chaos around this election. Why would you do that unless you completely understood that you were going to lose? That's the thing. He knows he's going to lose unless he creates doubt in the election. And you're absolutely right, Darian. They did all sorts of fact checking on everything he said by voting by mail. And it was absolutely false. All those stories were factually inaccurate. Well, and the thing is, every election, there's always questions about voting. And we can get better when we work together on reforming systems and making sure that everyone has the right to vote. We can get better. But the Republican Party has not been standing by the idea of everyone having the right to vote. And that's problematic, right? Like, I liked when Joe Biden said, look, like there's going to be a victor because that's the truth. There is going to be a victor. And Donald Trump is going to have to get that through his mind. And all of us are going to have to be part of the process to make sure that there's a peaceful transition of power. But that was that's also a great point, Johanna, because that was one of the moments that really stood out as the most chilling is when Chris Wallace asked if they would accept the election results. And Biden answered again unequivocally, yes. You know, he talked about how he would absolutely accept it regardless of who won. And Trump again deflected, again, saying, you know, all these excuses about the ballots. And every time that Chris Wallace would say, well, it could take weeks to get the the results from the mail-in ballots, then Trump was like, it could take months. And you're just watching again, like the foreshadowing here of what's going to happen. He's not being um, discreet about it. He's actually being quite overt about what he's going to do. You're absolutely right, Alejandra. And there is a congressional mandate that this is resolved within a couple of weeks even. And you just look at someone who was losing his temper. Like you couldn't follow the rant that he was on. And you look at him and you just know that he is feeling this all slip away and he is grasping for whatever gets him more relevancy, gets him more hits in the press. And that's not presidential leadership. 
Exactly. Well, and I heard from some people, you know, I watched some of the reactions and I I heard, well, Joe Biden didn't have a plan for COVID either. And it's like, well, number one, he's going to be inheriting the situation that President Trump has us in, which he did not actually lean into leading the globe with the World Health Organization. He did not have a national security advisor actively working on stopping a pandemic. We are in this situation because Donald Trump has done nothing to prevent the spread of COVID. And now Joe Biden is going to be in a very different situation. But what I will say for anyone who's listening who's worried about that is that the Biden team is actively planning a transition that will have all of these positions filled with people who are competent and qualified for their jobs. And so anyone who's worried about, you know, does Joe Biden have a plan? He has not only a plan, but an army of competence behind him that will get us back to some normalcy. I don't understand that whole Joe Biden didn't have a plan because A, he wasn't president, but he has made it very clear that on day one, there will be a mask mandate. He will start listening to experts. Again, another chilling. I feel like chilling is take a shot when we say chilling. I feel like another (laughs) chilling moment on the debate Debate bingo (laughs) exactly is when we were talking about experts and donald trump kept saying you know well sometimes you know his own experts the cdc doesn't know what they're talking about but pfizer and moderna i mean i've talked to all these private companies and americans are feeling a little worried about trusting that these vaccines are being pushed through for political purposes right and so how comfortable do we feel taking a vaccine i mean i don't know about you guys i mean let's talk about that for a second like i don't want to be in wave one i mean you have to look at this and think how is trusting scientists how is trusting? well wait do you guys like would you guys do it I would not do it. I actually, I would take a vaccine. And and here's what I would say. Would you take the first round of vaccine? I, I would. And here's, and here's the thing is I actually, I do believe, and this is the problem with President Trump, right, is he has dismissed so many of the experts that are still in government, but they are still there. Even the people he tried to fire, he literally will just silence them and move them somewhere because he, you know, has like tried to fire them with no cause because they're actually experts in their field. So I do do believe I still have trust in our government. Of course, if Vice President Biden becomes President Biden, I know that he will make sure that all of the checks are done before that. But I, I have to say, like, it is when we inject that distrust in our system that we won't have people taking the vaccine and this will continue to kill so many people. And so that is one of my fears about what Donald Trump's doing is he's dividing us on basic, you know, science, like whether a mask works, a mask works. He's also kind of vilified some of his own experts and, you know, went against their own recommendations and some of the statements that they put out. And I just keep thinking back to at the beginning of this pandemic, when we were told it would be gone by Easter, that we would start to see a Mm -hmm. slowdown in, in 14 days. And now we're six months past that. And we've got 200,000 people dead. I could have never imagined at the beginning of this that our president would let this country down, that he would fail the American people at this level and still be supported in the way that he is supported. Well, and God, how petty. He was making fun of Biden for wearing a mask. He was like, everywhere you go, you wear a mask and it's a big, big mask. And 
I was like, are this? It was like schoolyard taunts about really? him literally during a pandemic wearing a mask and how and, and taking no responsibility for holding these events outside. A lot of people not socially distanced. And we know, Herman Cain, that people have gotten sick at these events and just saying that, well, he's doing it because the demand is so high. And the reason Biden's not doing it is because the demand is so low. Again, it feels so juvenile and is not talking about the issue, which is how do we get out of this nightmare? How is it that we go back to a sense of normalcy? No one wants to hear you taunt Biden that not enough people want to go to your event, but everyone wants to go to mine. You're so right, Alejandra. How childish. It's so childish. And Darian, did you like every time he was like, now you've lost the left. It's like, I want a president who's not concerned about left or right, but concerned about Americans, period. (laughs) <laughs> we've, talk, we've talked about this. I mean, and Joe Biden has talked about this, not, you yes. know, a red America or a blue America. He is trying to be the president for all of America. And mm-hmm. you look at President Trump, who doesn't care. He just exactly. wants to appeal to the people who are on the far right, who he knows he can get their votes. He's never going to appeal to moderate Americans. He's never going to appeal to the middle, to the heart of America, because he doesn't know what that's like. He's never experienced life as a regular, everyday American. He was born into it. He mm-hmm. has only experienced, you know, being a wealth and elite. And he has squandered his own business away. He has squandered his own reputation away. He is not a man of honor, of substance. He is just not a good human. Yeah. You know, Joe Biden called him out on that. He yeah. told him, he's like, you don't connect with people. And he actually made that um, difference very clear on the debate, because if you notice, the only person who addressed the American people on the debate was Joe Biden. He turned several times and looked directly into the camera and spoke directly to the American people. And there were two pieces. One is exactly what you're talking about, Darian. He talked about you folks at home living in these small towns. How are you doing? How are you doing during this economic crisis? Because this guy only paid $750 in taxes. And he also turned it at a different point where he was talking about folks who have empty chairs, right, at their tables. Because they've lost someone to COVID or because they're not able to go to the hospital to see their mother or their father when they're battling an illness. And so I think those two moments really stood out to me as super poignant because that is what we're used to, right? On these debates of the presidential candidates speaking to us, talking to us, not fighting with literally Chris Wallace, like Trump and Chris Wallace were talking to each other for like 10 minutes, right? We're like, hello. And then to have... Peter Navarro today calling Chris Wallace Joe Biden's cut man and blaming him for allowing the president to go off the rails and to call him a third debater. At one point, it was just Chris Wallace as like the kindergarten teacher in the room talking to President Trump, telling him, you know, you can't continue on this way. You have to allow other people to speak. A moderator really shouldn't have to do that. No, they should be able to control the conversation, but you shouldn't have to tell someone you need to allow someone else to speak. 
Okay, so I want to talk about moderators in general because I don't love the idea of three white men on stage talking about the future, three older white men on stage talking about the future for all of us, all of us Americans, right? I actually don't mind Chris Wallace. Like we did our first sit down interview back when President Obama was running for office with Chris Wallace with Fox News. And we had to like spin up a little interview place like it was in a coach's office. And I remember he was completely, you know, polite and and capable. And I think that he's tried to maintain some level of uh, discourse. But for whatever reason, he felt the need to, you know, say, yes, yes, Mr. President, even though he was lying about having all outdoor rallies. That's not true. That was disproven. He, you know, said to your point, Darian, he's like, you know, oh, you'll like this next question, right? It's like, we don't need to say that to a president of the United States who's a normal president of the United States. So he probably did like the best job he could with the unfortunate thing he was handed. But I did not like the format. I was very worried because the next one is with Steve Scully, the next presidential debate. But it, I guess they are going to be able to do the town hall. So they will have ordinary Americans asking questions, which I think would have been so much better. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. I do give Chris Wallace credit. He did ask tough questions on both sides. You know, he was the one who brought, um, put Trump on the ropes about denouncing white supremacy and also, you know, violence at the polls and so on if he was going to accept the results of the election. He asked those clear questions. It's just he also let Trump get away with a lot of talking around him and getting away from the question. I think it was, they were saying it was past the first hour mark before he said, Mr. President, you can't, you know, you have to stay to the time. Like he wasn't calling him on it for a long time. And you were watching them say your time is up. And then he was allowed to continue going on and on and on. So it to me, it seemed like he lost control of the moderation many, many times, yeah. more than his questions being an issue. I think that he just lost control. And that was to our detriment because you give Trump an inch and he takes a mile. Well, you know, what do you guys think about that? To your point about, you know, giving an giving him an inch and, you know, putting more restrictions. A lot of people this morning are saying that they're, it wouldn't be worth it to have another debate. And others are saying there need to be more restrictions, like the ability for the moderator to cut the mic of someone who has gone over their time. Yes. What do you think about that? Hit the mute button. I cannot believe that we're in the situation where we have to mute a president of the United States, but we are, and we saw it. You know, I think, Darian, anyone who's saying that Joe Biden is going to back down from the next debate doesn't know Joe Biden, right? Right. Like, all three of us worked with Joe Biden, and we know that he's the kind of man whose wife dies in a car accident with his young daughter, and he still serves our country. He raises two kids as a single dad. He gets married to Jill Biden and devotes himself to a 40 plus year marriage standing, you know, with his family. The other side, which was shocking to me that Donald Trump brought up divorce, but he was talking about how many people are getting divorced, right? He's thrice married. He has his his latest wife, who's about the same age as his daughter, come up on stage. And like, he's telling us about value, family values. <laughs> and has <laughs> paid more to, more to Stormy Daniels than he paid in taxes. Let's be yeah. <laughs> Who are you to espouse American values and what is right? Like, no, absolutely no, there is, not. There is no moral compass in Donald Trump. But you're right, Johanna, because we know that Joe Biden is not going to pass up any opportunity to talk to Americans. Exactly. You know, think about 
knowing the background that he suffered from a stutter for a lot of his childhood and imagine having someone consistently, constantly interrupt you like that. And he's already stated publicly that this is something that he still deals with, you know, as far as managing it. Think of the the strength and fortitude that he was showing on that stage and the courage to be able to hold it together, not lose his cool and just focus on the American people. You know, like it was such a contrast. That's the sort of discipline and restraint you want to see in your president. The ability to get on a stage with world leaders and go toe to toe with them and not back down to a bully, because let's be real. That's what Donald Trump is. He is a bully. Yes. Yeah. You want that sort of strength and resolve. And I was really happy to see that on the stage last night. And isn't it kind of triggering? I don't know if like you know, all three of us were texting um, during that and we were talking about how stressed we were. But to anyone who's been bullied, which if there's someone in this who's listening who's never been bullied, God, you are so lucky because, yeah. you know, I know a lot of us <laughs> at different points in our lives have been. To anyone who's been bullied or God forbid verbally abused, it was so triggering and stressful yes. to watch that. You felt so wound up afterwards. Like, how do you go to sleep? It That's was, right. I did not sleep well last night, and I just continued to think about that that sort of experience and having that be the person who is driving the West Wing and leading the West Wing, and he's the one talking to junior staffers and the person that people that work at the White House are supposed to look up to. Yeah. And I can't imagine sitting in a room and having someone talk to me like that. Well, here's the thing. I remember they told us when we were in the White House, and I really do believe this, that the president really does set the tone for the entire staff and just the environment within the White House. The the Clinton White House was very different than the Obama White House. And because of the way that President Obama was, it was very no drama, very focused on the work, very focused on keeping, you know, everything about the people and the issues. And that, again, because it was set at the top, it permeated all the way down. And so, you know, when like there's a rotten apple at the top, how that affects the staff. You're right. And to your point, Alejandra, and to your point, Darian, it's like, you know, when are we going to get leadership is the question, because it is like, you know, here we're watching this. And I think all of us have been in that situation with a bully and we've been able to walk away. Right. And that's what you're supposed to do. And it's like, you know, it was kind of like you're at the bar watching a bar fight about to start and you just want to walk away. And but the problem is that it's our country on the line. And so, you know, when when Donald Trump was elected, I remember a lot of people saying, "Oh, we just need a business person, right?" Well, now that I run a small business, I know that in business you can just walk away when you don't like, you know, a client or when you're working with someone who you don't want to work with, you can just walk away. You cannot do that when you are president of the United States and when you are responsible for everything that, you know, our country and our children's futures are on the line. And so, you know, I have to say I I can't wait for Joe Biden to keep standing up. And to a lot of people who were texting me last night who wanted him to get more defensive, there is an army of all of us behind him who will absolutely defend him because he is on stage with a horrendous bully right now. I mean, quote of the night, will you shut up, man? I mean, I think all of us were shouting (sighs) that at our televisions. 
You know, it was, I mean, at a certain point, there was nothing left to say. But I mean, speaking of nothing to say, healthcare. When yes. Donald Trump, again, were in the middle of COVID, he was asked about health care. What is his health care plan? He never answered the question. He completely deflected. And, you know, we touched on the police training piece of it. And again, we could have had a really comprehensive debate about training police, about racial sensitivity training, and again, deflected it. So I, I really wish we could be here today on the podcast talking about the issues and comparing and contrasting what these candidates see for our country. But it feels like what we can talk about is actually the interpersonal abusiveness and the dynamic that was going on because there wasn't a lot of substance. There wasn't a lot of substance. And even when Chris Wallace called him on not actually putting a plan in place that would replace the Affordable Care Act, he kept saying, well, it'll, it'll, it'll come, it'll come, it'll come. And his entire plan is to have his new Supreme Court nominee put on the Supreme Court and then completely repeal it. But what do you have to replace it? What is better? And he was not able to give any actual plan. Well, and that's the whole thing is when we when we looked at the fact check, there are more than 100 million Americans that do have pre-existing conditions. And, you know, because my mom is on the Affordable Care Act, this is, again, very personal. You know, as long as we don't have health insurance available to all Americans at an affordable price, we will not have entrepreneurs. We are limiting our small businesses, our entrepreneurship, our innovation by making people stay with big companies for their health insurance. And so, you know, I really want to have this debate of how we can reform the system, but he cannot actually legislate protecting pre-existing conditions through an executive order. So that was false. Further, he talked, the only plan he brought up when Chris Wallace said, what's your plan, was using favored nation approach for drug pricing, which I think there's a lot to discuss in terms of the U.S. subsidizing research and development around the world. And that is a debate that President Obama wanted to have. He wanted Republicans involved in healthcare reform. But for nearly two decades now, they have just said no. And that is not good enough for the American people. So I understand that there are debates in the Democratic Party on which route you take to get to a place where we all have health insurance, but at least they're discussing ideas. And as long as Republicans don't discuss ideas, well, shame on them. Well, last night I was following Truth, and we talk about how there are 100 million people, Americans, with pre-existing conditions. And Truth actually said, you know, that's not actually right, as President Trump says. There are 133 million people yes. that have pre-existing conditions. And if you look at this, and you look at COVID like we talked about last week, that's now a pre-existing condition, right? Yeah. And how do we protect all of these millions of Americans now that have been diagnosed with it? So and talking about health insurance, a lot of Americans feel very anxious about the fact that their health insurance could be in the balance now in the Supreme Court with the recent nomination of Amy Coney Barrett. And that's something else that they touched upon in the debate. Well, how could you not? She's got a track record of disagreeing with Chief Justice Roberts' majority opinion in 2012 upholding the law. 
we already know she is against this, but what else is she against? Where where are we with Roe versus Wade? Where are we with workplace protections for women? Like she has a track record of disagreeing with all of those. Yeah. No, I was surprised that that was the first question out of the gate on the Supreme Court because in the history, um, the Supreme Court is not supposed to be political in the sense of we are not supposed to be vetting their political views, right? President Trump actually made it very political last time around because people were doubting his loyalty to the Republican Party. He put out a list of Supreme Court justice nominees. And I think that Amy Coney Barrett is actually perfectly qualified. I am thrilled to have an, a mother of seven. I actually think that's great. I think she would have been a great nominee when he was out of the gate nominating someone for Justice Scalia's seat because the Republicans refused to confirm a justice during an election year. But this, a weekend while people are voting that they nominate and try to rush through a Supreme Court justice before the people's votes are tallied, just four years after they said that they couldn't do it, it just reeks of so much hypocrisy that the American people, like, look, they can see it, right? And so, you know, absolutely, healthcare is on the ballot. And if she rules in the favor of getting rid of the Affordable Care Act, any of us lose our pre-existing condition coverage. And Roe v. Wade, that was another thing, you guys. Like, did you see that Trump somehow said that Roe v. Wade isn't on the ballot? You know, I think the American people is are very clear about what is in the balance right now because of, again, what you've said about Amy Coney Barrett's background that we all know. We talked about this last week and the hypocrisy of it, but we are so close to the election right now and so many big issues that affect women specifically are really up for grabs. And so why why politicize this? It's governance through fear. The, the scare tactics that are being utilized here when a majority of Americans believe that whoever wins this election should be the one to appoint this justice. We have to go with what Americans want. And I think that in this is a critical time for women to really think about the issues that face them issues of their home, the issues of their children, the issues of, you know, trying to balance it all. And I'm all, just like you said, Johanna, I am all about working moms having really high positions in this government because I think that they are best suited to make decisions on behalf of the American people. But in this situation, I cannot fathom having him appoint this woman. I had to soothe a friend this weekend, Darian, who was like in tears, like this is going to be the court for the rest of my life. Like, I'm so worried about this. And, you know, she was like, y you guys, you know, didn't do enough on the courts. And I'm like, actually, President Obama appointed two women out of the gate who are on the court and then was supposed to have Merrick Garland be considered by the Senate. You know, the thing is, like, I, I don't want Americans to get frustrated with the court. And I, I'm glad that Joe Biden isn't going there with how could you reform the court to have it more representative, because that is a debate that the Senate and the House are going to have to take up at the Senate, really, after the election. But the truth is, the way that we lose control of our government is by giving up. That's right. And I hope that, you know, if... Americans and our listeners take anything from last night's debate. It's that we all have to show up. 
We have to show up. We have to bring our family with us. If we're going to these polls and we feel uncomfortable, then you bring a friend. You bring your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your best friends. You show up. You stand in line. You bring a lunch. You don't back down. And that's what standing up to a bully is all about. And if you don't feel comfortable going in person, because I know there's a lot of folks with pre-existing conditions and immunosuppressed right now and in a pandemic, you vote by mail, but you go and you make sure you drop it off at a ballot drop-off box and you really track your ballot and make sure that there's no ambiguity that there'll be a problem because voter fraud is very rare with vote by mail. Not at all. And I, you know, I got my ballot yesterday and I plan to drop it off today. And if even more so, I'm looking at what I do on election day to help protect voters. And I think that we all have to really step up and go the extra mile to make sure that people are able to vote. That's the point of our democracy is that people are able to vote. And we want to make sure that that happens on election day. Absolutely. The the campaign came out with IWillVote.com, which actually helps people register. And this is, again, I saw that post, Alejandra, you had on your Instagram of the Joe Biden graphic showing how many people don't vote every time around. And a lot of people will say to me, oh, my vote doesn't matter. But it does. And that's why I was so upset about the Kentucky story with this young person, because I'm like, just look at the numbers. If we all register, when we all go to IWillVote.com and register, we will actually win. Because at the end of the day, as Joe Biden told us last night, under President Trump, a next term, we will become weaker, sicker, poorer, more divided, and more violent. It is all on the line, you guys. We have to show up for each other, and we have to show up for this country. You're absolutely right. And for our future, I think about my kids. This is what we got to do. I am I am hosting a socially distant of. Uh, phone bank training this weekend. So let's keep it all up. <laughs> keep it all up. Well, as we move into our POTUS of the week, and this is an interesting one, it has been giving me life this week. And it is Miss Stephanie from Humans of New York. In the midst of a lot of darkness, her story has really inspired a lot of people across the globe to hear a tale of resilience and overcoming and just all of the tattletales of Tangeray that you could get. And so Brandon from Humans of New York for sharing her story and finding her and Stephanie for being open to telling her story in a really authentic way and providing all of the receipts. Yes, so, Tangeray. Yes, awesome. And I have a shout out this week because I think a lot of us are looking for inspiration, especially for our kids. So I'm giving a shout out to a friend from Kansas who just wrote a book. Lindsay Metcalf actually teamed up with Keila Dawson and Jeanette Bradley to author a new children's book, No Voice Too Small. And it's the story of 14 young Americans making history. It celebrates ordinary young people who accomplished extraordinary things. And I know that we need some inspiration for our kids this week. So I want to Pass it along. No Voice Too Small is available wherever books are sold. Support local bookstores. Yes, especially <laughs> right now. Uh, well, thanks for being with us this week as we unpacked this uh, shit show of a debate. <laughs> um, right. I think it's a proper terminology. 
And thank you for your patience. I know that we released this episode one day later than normal, but we didn't want to miss the opportunity to talk about this debate with you guys this week. Be sure to join us next week. We have a really, really important topic for women and for men, which is breast cancer. One in eight women are affected by breast cancer in their lives. We're going to have a top doctor and specialist come on to talk to us. Johanna, I know you shared on this episode that your mother was recently diagnosed with breast cancer, and I had breast cancer two years ago. And so this is a deeply personal topic, and we we can't wait to talk to you guys about this next week. See you guys then. Awesome.